Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, as we record the podcast here on Friday morning, it is uh, day four of election week on the national stage, and we're not going to try to uh, uh, delve into that too much. Uh, we're going to focus on Idaho elections, which were kind of a one and done. We, we kind of knew by Tuesday night most of what we were going to find out. and there were some things that, even though it was kind of a stay-the-course election in, in Idaho, there were some things that jumped out and some things that we should talk about. Yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting night. Obviously, record numbers of turnout in Idaho, and we can get into that. You had a really interesting elections analysis piece, Kevin, that you published uh, on Wednesday of this week. And it's pretty easy for me to write the headline about how Republican incumbents did well on Tuesday night, but you really crunched some of the historic data and put it in context and talked about what's going on and kind of dug under the surface of these results. And so, uh, yeah, starting with state races, that's what we really focused on, races that affected legislators who are involved with the education committees and the budget committees. We know that Republicans added to their supermajority in the House by picking up two seats. But, but Kevin, as you dug under the surface, what results really jumped out at you and what, what, what made this an interesting election from your perspective? Well, Wednesday morning, I mean, I had the benefit of about five or six hours of sleep, so I was able yeah. to uh, come at the numbers a little bit, a little bit more freshly. Um, what I wanted to do and what I tried to do with the piece was kind of make the case that even though there weren't many surprises at the top of the ticket, there are some things that jumped out. There are some numbers and some trends that, that did jump out, that did uh, tell us a little bit of something about the way Idaho politics might be changing. Let's talk about what didn't change, and, and let's dispense with what didn't change. Okay. Idaho went red in the presidential race. Uh, Donald Trump actually improved on his percentage from four years ago, he was up above 63% after falling below the 60% mark in 2016, which you know, was the first time in a couple of decades that we had a presidential, uh, a Republican presidential nominee fall below that 60% threshold. So Donald Trump improved his numbers in Idaho, both in terms of percentage and in terms of the raw vote, because as you said, we had this uh, big uptick in turnout. Right. So, you know, 30 percentage point gap more or less between um, between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. This is kind of what we've seen in past uh, election cycles in Idaho. So, you know, really not any anything out of the ordinary. And to whatever extent those uh, coattails extended to the race for U.S. Senate, the two races for Congress, certainly there was a coattail effect that, that had to help uh, Jim Risch and Mike Crapo and Russ Fulcher who were probably, uh, you know, they probably didn't need the coattails all that much, but uh, all three of those races were fairly, uh, fairly one-sided and fairly unsuspenseful. I think AP called the U.S. Senate race pretty much at nine o'clock. Uh, they did. Every time, as soon as the polls closed up north, uh, their, their exit polling and their projections and their, their number crunching told them right away that uh, that race was going to end quickly. So they, they called it quickly. So none of this is surprising. So that's the, the non-surprising stuff. But remember that 30 percentage point figure I'm talking about 
in that presidential race statewide. Ada County numbers were really interesting to me. Uh, Trump did carry Ada County, but he carried it by less than four percentage points. And that is a figure, Clark, that has steadily decreased over the past two decades. I mean, I went back Wednesday morning just to, to kind of you know, figure out where I was going with this piece. And I looked, uh, you know, 20 years ago, uh, Bush v. Gore, um, Bush won Ada County by, uh, I want to say about 30 percentage points as well. I've got all those numbers in my, in my analysis piece. But my, my point is landslide win. Landslide wins for George W. Bush in, in Ada County, as well as uh, on the statewide sta scale. What you saw Tuesday night in Ada County, a near split and you know, a very different outcome you know, in the state's largest county as opposed to the rest of the state. And that, that I find really interesting. And that I do find really interesting in the national context. I mean, you know, we've spent a lot of time as Americans these past couple of days looking at election results and election returns in Maricopa County, Arizona, right. Clark County, Nevada. And Ada County, Idaho is not Maricopa County or Clark County, but there are some parallels here. You know, the largest county in a largely rural, largely, you know, you know far-flung Western state with lots of expanses of red, and sparsely populated counties. These big urban centers in Western states that are moving towards the left, that are, that are turning blue. I, I taped this podcast on Friday morning. It looks very much like uh, Joe Biden is going to win Nevada, as Hillary Clinton did four years ago. It looks like Biden might also win Arizona, which I want to say has not gone Democratic and a presidential race since Bill Clinton. So things are changing in states like Nevada and Arizona, and they're not changing the same way in Idaho. I mean, Idaho is still voting reliably red in presidential races, a lot more like you know, Montana or Wyoming or Utah. But you start to wonder if the demographics are gonna change, and you start to wonder, and you start to realize that that may be part of the dialogue about Idaho politics. If you wonder why rural lawmakers and rural Republicans are so suspicious of the great state of Ada and are sometimes so disdainful of the politics that they see in Boise, I think this gives you a sense of why. I, I, I think you've got folks around the state, you know, conservatives and Republicans around the state. They're not nice. They know what's happening in Nevada and Arizona as it has happened in Washington state and Oregon. And, you know, years and years before, they know that the demographics can change over time. And I think they're concerned that, you know, somewhere down the road, Idaho politics might change if Ada County's politics is be become such a driving force at the statewide level. So, yeah, I, I was, you know, I was struck by, even though this was on the surface, a pretty ho-hum election, a pretty ho-hum presidential election, it tells you some things about the, where the state is going. It, it's really interesting, um, and you can catch uh, that piece online at the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. And it's solid analysis because you really are dipping below the surface, going back and putting in the historical context, because it's easy to look at Tuesday night and say, 
Well, heck, Kevin, even the Republicans had a great showing in Ada County Tuesday night, and I'll tell you why. Uh, one of the legislative districts that we were watching, Legislative District 15, uh, generally speaking over in West Boise, uh, is a split district or a purple district that has been under Republican control for years and years and years. And then in the last two to four years, Democrats started making some inroads. Well, District 15 is one of the districts where Republicans picked up uh, a seat on Tuesday. They did very well there. Uh, um, a, challenge, a Republican challenger, I believe Cody Galloway, uh, beat yep. Democratic State Representative Jake Ellis. That was a Republican pickup. And then in the District 15 Senate race, Senator Fred Martin uh, won by a wider margin than he did two years ago. I think he only won by like six votes or something uh, two years ago, won by a wider margin uh, this week to retain his seat. And so Republicans did well uh, in two of the three seats on offer in District 15. That was a pickup for them. But where Republicans really are going to be happy about their performance in Ada County, Kevin, as we talked about, uh, is flipping the county uh, commission uh, in Ada right. County. Uh, two Republicans knocked off a pair of Democrats there. That was a big win uh, for Democrats. And it's really where we're going to see uh, potentially an impact right away uh, is with the central district health. Uh, as we've talked about in some of our articles over the last several months and maybe even on this podcast, uh, the health district boards of directors are really populated and appointed by county commissioners. Diana Lachiando, who had been an Ada County commissioner uh, and was serving on Central District Health's board, lost this week to Republican challenger Ryan Davidson, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you hit it on the head. I think that's why we're going to spend more time talking about Ada County commission races than we normally would on an education podcast, because that CDH board is going to be really interesting to watch. It's been interesting to watch already because yeah. uh, Diana Lachiando has been uh, front and center in the debate about uh, mask requirements, uh, about uh, you know, you know, school reopening issues, and she has aligned on that board with with other with other board members, most notably uh, Ted Epperly, the doctor, doctor yeah. who has yeah. been very outspoken about the need to do more to curb the spread of coronavirus. So you had that that faction, if you will, on that uh, health district board, contrasted with uh, Megan Blanksma, the representative uh, for Elmore County on that board, also uh, you know, state legislator, uh, right. state representative Megan Blanksma, who has been skeptical about a lot of the proposals and a lot of the recommendations uh, in terms of coronavirus restrictions. Blanksville will most likely find somebody, will mostly, most likely find an ally on the board with whoever takes Lashiando's place on that uh, health district board, whether it's Ryan Davidson or Rod Beck. I would assume it's one or the other. And I would also assume that uh, whoever that is is going to align pretty closely with Megan Blacksmith on a lot of these issues. So it's going to be really interesting to watch the, the discussion uh, in that board, in the debate within that board, a board that is talking right now about, you know, you know, concern about the growing coronavirus case numbers in Ada County. So, you know, that's going to be fascinating to watch. 
it, so, yeah. it is going to be really interesting, and that's the education nexus. If you say, "Okay, guys, <laughs> I appreciate that you have a, a podcast looking at the intersection of policy and, and politics. Why in the heck are you talking about the policy these here, these yeah. county commission races?" Well, that, that's the policy and the politics of it, but the education nexus is really clear uh, when we talk about uh, the county commissioners and the interfacing with the public health districts. As we know, Idaho's seven independent health districts are giving guidance each week to our schools about their reopening plans, about their risk categories uh, with the coronavirus. And, and so this is really where it gets down to the rubber meeting the road and where it will affect education. And you talked about central district health, uh, which is what Ada County feeds into, really has interesting discussions going on talking this week about alarming rates of the virus spreading. And when you look at the numbers, we're essentially, when you look at incidence rates, we're getting it close to double what the original threshold for going to red had been. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it just continues uh, to spread and grow and increase. Um, and we're not just talking about cases. Uh, we, we saw uh, record numbers of deaths uh, yep. this week. And you're tracking it and you'll have another update uh, this afternoon about dinner time, but that's why we're talking about uh, particularly this Ada County Commission race and why flipping it is such a big deal. Because uh, and and I'll have to double check the timeline uh, for when the the changes could be made, but but we could see changes at the you know Central District Health that are going to affect our schools this school year, and so that's why we're talking yeah. about it, and that's why it's so interesting. And why all, so many of these things are so connected, right, Kevin? It really brings it home on why your vote matters and how the government comes together and how the different pieces fit together. And so that regard, um, it is sort of fascinating to see our state government take shape, right? And it comes together in subtle ways that you, know, you might not expect. When you think about these election results uh, on Tuesday, I would say that the races that may have the most profound education nexus are the Ada County Commission races because of the the CDH angle. The College of Western Idaho trustee races, which which were contested, you're going to have three new trustees on the CWI board, Uh, all three women, all three uh, women of color. Uh, You're going to have a very diverse and a very fresh perspective on that board as CWI is facing the challenges of face-to-face learning, online learning, you know, blended learning, all, all of those education options in the middle of a pandemic. And as CWI is facing some enrollment declines, you know, for the first time in the school's history. I mean, this is a school that has grown exponentially since it opened uh, about a decade ago. Now you're seeing, you know, a, a drop-off in enrollment for the first time. So a challenging time for CWI and an entirely different complexion uh, you know, entirely different makeup uh, on that board so it's going to be very very interesting to watch so that's a race a series of races that were interesting you know really we we looked at the legislative races you looked at the legislative races uh, on election night two seats flipped uh, from democratic to republican control you mentioned the one um, in district 15 there was one uh, other Gallas was a first term legislator who did he wasn't on the education committee. Um, Chris Abernathy, a Democrat in Pocatello, correct, uh, first-term legislator. He did lose. He was on the House Education Committee. 
So you'll have a, a change in membership and house education just off of that. Yeah, we'll have. But really, you know, you know, the, the legislative races are not going to have a huge impact on the way the legislature looks in twenty twenty one. I mean, no, you know, the key legislators on the education committees and on the budget committee, they're all coming back. Yeah, because all of them had easy re-elections on Tuesday whether they were unopposed or they faced, you know, kind of token opposition, you know. And that's become another thing that jumps out at me at Idaho, about Idaho politics right now is just the, the girth of competitive legislative races and competitive legislative districts. Um, and we, we spend so much time fixating on District 15 in West Boise because it's such an outlier. Yeah, it's an actual battle of ground legislative district. We don't have many of them in the state, and we're not going to have many of them in a couple of years when we redistrict because we've got, you know, huge areas in the state that are, you know, staunchly Republican. We've got pockets in Boise, particularly, that are staunchly Democratic. And no matter how you carve up the map, and it may affect individual legislators, you're not going to carve up the map and get a lot of competitive legislative districts when you have, you know. Voting blocks that are as locked into one side or the other. It's still going to be uh, fairly non-competitive legislative races by and large, and you know that affects policy because you know when legislators are not facing serious opposition at home or serious competition at home, there's not a lot of incentive to govern from the middle. There's not a lot of incentive to build consensus or you know you know seek bipartisan solutions because you're going to go home and face a, a voting base that's, you know, pretty friendly to, you know, you know taking a hard line on, on, on issues. Well, I, I think you're exactly right. And I think that the message that Republicans in the legislature are going to take home is that they got a vote of confidence this week, that the electorate said more of this, more of the same, please. And when you talk about, you know, just how uncompetitive this is, and I'm going back to your piece from this week, but uh, just the basic numbers. We've got 105 legislators, 105 seats in the whole legislature. 44 of those candidates didn't even have opposed races. Right. Uh, another 51 won easily, capturing at least 60% of the vote. So real quick, uh, we're, we're talking 95 out of 105 legislators, uh, no competition to speak of whatsoever at all. Absolutely, the Republicans are going to see this as a vote of the confidence, more of the same, uh, a vote of support for their agenda. The only ways that I could maybe see this coming into play and making a slight little bit of difference if you're really, really studying the legislature closely is the balance of power moved up. And so there are now 58 Republicans and 12 Democrats. There were 14 Democrats this most recent legislative session. And so Democrats are going to lose a couple seats on committees. And there's two big ones. I don't know what's going to happen. They'll sort it out in December. But I'm going to keep my eye on the Budget Setting Joint Finance Appropriations Committee and on the House Education Committee. Those are two large committees uh, by legislative standards. And if you've got to take Democrats out of committees, they've got to come from somewhere. Uh, and so they could lose a seat on either an education or a budget committee. Uh, leadership will hammer that out during the organizational session in December. But that's maybe one of the only areas where I could really see 
a tangible impact. Obviously, the supermajority with the Republicans increased. Uh, under some people's perceptions, that might mean that it could make it a little bit easier if there was a potential situation where they were maybe looking to override a veto at the end of the year. Um, that gets really complicated really quickly, depending on the issue. Uh, but we do know the balance of power has changed, and we do know that Democrats will lose a couple committee seats. And Kevin is veterans of the legislature. Even though it doesn't always seem like it, committees is where the action is. That's where the work gets done. That's where things happen, right? And, and especially a committee, and you follow this one closely as well, is uh, the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. Yeah. So as it stood this year, um, 20-member committee, and it was eight Republicans, two Democrats from each chamber. So House Democrats had two uh, representatives on JFAC, the, the Senate uh, they had two Democratic senators on JFAC as well. So I'm going to be curious to see how that makeup looks on, on JFAC on the House Democratic side, because uh, Sally Toon was on JFAC. Uh, she was reelected. Uh, Melissa Wintrow was the other uh, House Democrat yeah. on JFAC. She's moving over to the Senate. So there's no guarantee she's going to be back in JFAC. And if she was back in JFAC, that would mean that she was effectively taking a seat from either uh, Jeannie Ward-Engelking or Mark Nye, the two uh, Senate Democrats on JFAC. So there are going to be changes there, even if the even if the party complexion, even if the party makeup on JFAC is the same. And you know, you're right about the committees. And we watch those committees. We watch JFAC. And we watch the education committees, and, and JFAC maybe even more than the education committees. You know, along the along the margins, along the fringes, you know, in kind of low-key ways that maybe don't get huge uh, scrutiny, committee members make a mark on that budget. And yeah, we see it time and time again. We even minority members of JFAC can leave their mark on the budget. You know, Melissa Wintrow. And Janie Ward Engelking, there or there are moments, and they kind of pick their spots here and there, and say, "This is something I'm going to fight for, and this is a line item that I'm going to make a push for." And they're successful more often than you might expect. They're, they, you know, they have had their moments where they can, you know, cobble together a majority and, and get some Republican support for a, a line item or for a proposal. So yes, the committees, you know, that's where the action is. That's where the policy is made. Uh, that's where the, you know, you know, and that's where individual members of the legislature, if they know what they're doing, can make an impact. Yeah. And that is a committee that really, uh, more than any other committee is used to getting work done. They meet every morning early. Uh, they have a lot of work. The budget process is what drives the length of the legislative session every year. Um, it's really one of the, only a handful of constitutional requirements that we have to take care of every legislative session is to uh, to set a budget and, and then set a balanced budget. We can't have expenses exceed revenue. And so it's a really fascinating committee. It's kind of a workhorse committee. It'll be one one to watch along with the education committees. The the election to be Clark, I yeah. interrupt, you know, it tends to be a lot more of a, a pragmatic committee. Yeah. More of a, not a very ideological committee. There are very few times that you see members of JFAC, you know, place an ide ideological stake in the ground. It just doesn't happen very often. It's about the numbers. It's about the dollars. It's about, you know, 
what's available to spend and you know what proposals or programs are showing results. I mean, you know, this year was kind of almost a rare exception because you had what became a very ideological debate about moving those IT and data management positions from Sharia Bar's shop to the State Board of Education. That became personal. That became ideological. You don't see those kind of debates in JFAC very often. It tends to be a pretty nuts and bolts, pragmatic, bottom line oriented committee where, you know, you, you don't get very far in JFAC as a legislator if you're playing the ideological card. It just doesn't other members tend to tune that stuff out and, and tend to just sort of say, well, you know, okay, we, we got budgets we got to set here. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what JFAC looks like. It'll be interesting to see what the education committees look like. I, I can't at this point imagine a whole lot of changes at the top in the education committees. Um, but they get only the one we orientation session. We'll yeah. The only change at the top of the education committees is the one that we already knew about, and that affects the Senate Education Committee. Uh, if you remember, uh, former Senate Education Committee Chair Dean Mortimer, Republican at Idaho Falls, did not run for re-election this year, and so there will be a new chair. Uh, we did see, as expected, uh, the vice chair, uh, Republican State Senator Stephen Thane out of Emmett, uh, comfortably won re-election this week could be in line to become chair of the Senate Education Committee. We'll look for that. That'll be one of the top stories that we'll cover in December with that organizational session, right? Which right. is just I mean, next month. Tend to be carved out based on seniority. And, yeah. you know, Senator Thane has been on that committee for a long time. He's been vice chair for quite a while. Um, you know, not knowing how this is going to play out and not really knowing, you know, what may be going on behind the scenes. It would almost be a bigger surprise if he wasn't the chairman of Senate Education. I mean, you, you would think that all the uh, all all the signals would would point you in that direction. But we know, also have a stranger a, things have happened. Stranger well, we also happened. have a a Senate leadership election that we're going to have to get through. Typically, the night before committees are decided. As you'll also remember, uh, the top ranking member of the Idaho Senate for a long time, uh, Senate President Pro Tem Brent Hill. Republican out of Rexburg also did not run for re-election. And so there's a, a leadership opening at the top for that pro tem seat. Uh, and then that will affect, uh, depending if, for instance, Chuck Winder goes from majority leader to pro tem, that'll affect other uh, positions in Republican leadership in the Senate as well. So we got to get right. through that first, and then we'll know the committee assignments. And we expect that to happen, well, just about a month from now, right? Yeah, and that's the uh, the prelude to the legislative session as we get those committee assignments, as we get those leadership elections, um, and that's going to be right around the corner because the legislature is uh, closer than uh, that you might think. It's only two months away. Well, and I know everyone's excited about that, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't, don't want to like you know you know bust anybody's bubble, but yes, the legislature is only a couple months away. Okay, uh, that was. Uh... Really, uh, the races that we wanted to highlight from this week's election, if you want to go back and take a closer look at anything, uh, two pieces up this week, Kevin's analysis piece, piece scratching below the surface, my kind of live story that I was posting into Wednesday morning, tracking legislative races, those are both up at www.idahoednews.org. Just a couple of more topics here on the back half of the show, Kevin. I know you continue... Uh, to watch the trends with the coronavirus and you're working on another 
uh, piece this week, but you really took a look at the Boise School District and an announcement they made earlier this week trying to drum up uh, some interest in an upcoming board meeting, but what did the district say and, and what was the reaction to that? It was a, it was a fairly surprising um, development on Thursday. Uh, so the Boise School Board is going to meet on Monday and uh, they're going to have a couple of uh, hospital officials make a report about uh, school opening and coronavirus. And in announcing the trustee meeting, uh, the district put out a uh, put out an announcement that basically said, and the headline is said, you know, health officials say that uh, Boise school operations are not affecting coronavirus spread. And that headline, you know, caught a lot of, <laughs> caught at least a couple of people off guard. I mean, I was a little bit surprised by it myself, but we heard from a couple of, uh, couple of parents and, and patrons right away saying, hey, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> um, to the point of the district issuing kind of a clarification late Thursday afternoon, they released a letter from a hospital official with the St. Luke's system, one of the, uh, one of the hospital folks who will speak to trustees on Monday night. Uh, the letter from the St. Luke's official saying, you know, you know, we understand the situation that you're dealing with. We support what you're trying to do. Um, you know, it's in my blog and you can link to yeah. the letter in my blog, but you know, this now becomes a, an interesting school board meeting on Monday because it, and it comes at a time, as we alluded to earlier, when the case numbers in Ada County and the case numbers statewide are not going in the right direction. You know, we're going to most likely set another weekly record for new cases in Idaho. And I'll be interested to see what the Ada County numbers uh, shake out to be for the week. You know, and you'll see this, uh, you know, again, we're taping Friday morning. My blog will post Friday evening. We're heading towards another round of record cases in, in the state. Ada County's numbers are trending upward. And that's the backdrop. That's well, we what, saw we saw that, records. That, that's what Boise schools' yeah. opening issues are, are are running up against. Well, we saw records with with deaths uh, this week as well in terms of single day cases, if I'm not mistaken. And so it had a little coming off of the deadliest week in the pandemic last week. So yeah, yeah. nothing nothing in those numbers is encouraging at all. So it had a little bit of a feel of like stringing the mission accomplished ba uh, banner up on the battleship. But I get what they were saying because we've heard it before, right? We heard it a few weeks ago when Central District Health said we support school districts continue to offer some form of in-person hybrid learning at this time, even under the red, because what they were not seeing, they were not seeing the spread at the same levels as it was in the community. They're not seeing it spread to that level in the schools. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, they're issuing guidance saying that we shouldn't be playing contact sports, and school districts are completely ignoring that. Um, well, and, you know, let's go back in time and look at what CDH signed on to and when they signed on to it, because that's about a month ago, and yeah. it feels like it's forever ago, but it was only a month ago when Boise moved into this uh, hybrid learning and, and, you know, accelerated this hybrid learning schedule of theirs. CDH did sign on. You know, again, districts make that decision. Health districts do not. School districts make that decision. Right. So the school district didn't need the health district's blessing, but they 
they got it anyway because uh, CDH basically said we, you know, we don't think that we're not seeing spread from the schools at this point. We think you can go ahead with a with a hybrid reopening, even in the red. Well, the case numbers have increased significantly, certainly on the state level and now on the county level since early October. And there was a, a CDH board meeting on Wednesday night. Rachel Roberts, her colleague with the Idaho Statesman, covered it where a CDH official was saying, you know, we want people to almost behave as if there's a stay-at-home order right now, even though there isn't, because the spread is, you know, is so extensive right now that, that people just need to limit their contact with people. Yeah, coming so from- what they're saying at the same time that Boise is proceeding with uh, the hybrid of face-to-face and online learning. Uh, so is West Data for that matter, but let's talk about Boise because Boise is kind of in the, the center of the debate right now. Yeah. And and we are, I mean, you talked about when CDH signed on, that was almost a month ago, but we are at a point right now, and I can't remember if I mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, but based on the uh, the incidents raised, uh, the incident rates were almost double uh, the point of what the original criteria was for the red. Um, and, and it doesn't appear that it's really slowing down or, or under control. We've got uh, people saying that there are an alarming number of caseloads. We've got medical professionals saying our hospital capacity continues to be strained, essentially begging Governor Little um, to issue a statewide mask mandate, which he has thus far resisted in favor of a local response and in favor of a personal responsibility um, reproach. But again, uh, you know, working largely with a, you know, the public will demonstrate personal responsibility, having that be our approach coupled with local control uh, that got us coming off a week of record number of cases and record number of deaths. And so that's where we stand. Um, and I know you'll sort that all out with the latest about dinner time tonight when you are about dinner time on Friday here, October or November 6th, when you publish your weekly trend line. So we'll know more information in a few hours. We'll have those numbers. We'll have all those trends. Uh, there's no sense in trying to you know, tease out what those numbers might look like. You'll be able to see them all uh, on Friday evening, or if you're listening to this after Friday evening, you can go onto my blog and see all the numbers for yourself. But uh, suffice it to say, we are after November 3rd, and we're still talking about coronavirus. Um, it did not go away. away. It, it didn't go away this week. Um, the, the The issue didn't go away. The the, the problems uh, and the, the, the crisis that comes with this pandemic, uh, none of that went away. So we will continue to, to track the numbers and track how uh, schools, both public schools at the K-12 level and higher education are uh, responding to the pandemic. Yeah, two other stories, not really going to go through them in depth, but I just wanted to let you know they're out there in case you wanted to seek them out. <clears throat> at uh, www.idahoednews.org. I had a follow-up story on the rapid coronavirus testing program that Governor Little announced. Well, he announced it, I think, back on October 1st. And uh, I can report that the tests have been distributed to the public health districts and testing is available, but the strategy really varies depending on where you live in the state. Some health districts are administering the tests themselves, uh, some have don't want to do testing at all, and so they pass the tests on to local medical and healthcare providers. Some health districts are testing K-12 students. Other 
health districts are not testing K-12 students at this time, including Central District Health. Uh, so they're not able to test K-12 students, but they want to test a thousand people with a different test who are asymptomatic who are going to be going to a football game this weekend. And so that's a little bit confusing, but that's where things stand. Um, so the testing update story is out there. I also had another story about the Master Educator Premium Program, and that was a bonus that the legislature created and then has now phased out, but it was intended to provide a financial bonus of $4,000 per year uh, to the teachers who are at the top of their field and meet this rigorous application portfolio process. And there's no other way to, to couch this other than bad news for the teachers who applied this year and the teachers who earned the premiums last year. Both the State Board of Education and the State Department of Education came out this week and said they have no estimate and no timetable for when they will score and evaluate those portfolios that came in with this year's application class. No estimate for when those will be scored and the decisions will be made and the money will start flowing. That's one issue. The second issue uh, for the teachers who received the premiums last year, I think it was about 1,400 teachers throughout the state. Uh, those folks got their bonus last year. They have not been paid this year, and the State Department of Education has no estimate for when they will be paid. Uh, and the reason that they're saying is because that they need to go through and verify uh, basically employment status with all this data that was submitted to the state in the middle of October to make sure that the right checks go to the right schools. The issue is if somebody got a premium last year and either quit being a teacher or retired or moving to another school district, they don't want to send their money to the wrong place. I talked to a teacher this week who was extremely frustrated, said there hasn't been any communication and said, they have all of our portfolio applications with all of our information about our employer and where we work. They could verify it through that way. Um, and so some frustration among these educators who earned these awards. And that's really the latest. I don't have anything to update other than no timetable. And, it, you know, I know teachers are frustrated because they were originally told by the state that decisions would be out by August, you know, some three, four months, three months ago. So that's out there, www.idahoednews.org. Really, that Master Educator Premium Program has had problems throughout its entire existence. Educators complained that it was a cumbersome application process. Uh, there were problems with the rollout or problems with the application system, delays with scoring. And so that's just sort of uh, one more issue there with a, a troubled program. But this will be the last class of applicants. Like I said, the legislature and the governor did discontinue it. So that program will be going away anyways. Um, that, that is one story that will go away, but it has been a, a tortured process and you know, a, a cumbersome process for, uh, for teachers who've been trying to uh, navigate the application and trying to uh, uh, seek a, a share of that money. So, Yeah, it was really pitched as a way to reward uh, the teachers at the very top of their field uh, and thank them and give them a little financial incentive and it's just turned out to be a, a boondoggle. I mean, it's just a mess. And it is a mess, and that's a fair way to describe it. 
Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, not exactly a ending on a ray of sunshine here. Um, but I think that's my report for this week. No, and it's been a full week. And, you know, as we mentioned, a lot of stuff to catch up on on our website. Uh, we've talked about most of it. I want to throw in a quick plug. I did a story about a, a Boise State program uh, to help students uh, kind of navigate the gap here. Students who are not uh, coming to campus uh, had a chance to talk to one of those students and uh, a couple of professors who are working on that program. So that's a feature that has absolutely nothing to do with elections. It does have to do with coronavirus because the program is a response to the coronavirus, but it has nothing to do with elections. So if you're looking for a story that is all education and no elections, that, that's that's one option for you. All right. Well, check but it's that been out. a week. It has been. It has been a week. Thanks so much for sticking with us. Uh, I know we've gotten in the weeds well, on every single one of our 232 podcasts, uh, but especially over the last few others. weeks. Some more than others. This was one of them. Last week certainly was as well. But I appreciate you hanging out with us. Uh, we do have a lot of fun kind of poking around at this intersection of education policy and education politics. So thanks for joining us. Uh, check out anything you missed at the homepage. That's www.idahoednews.org. If you're on Twitter, you can give us a follow at Idaho Ed News. If you like our Facebook page, that's where we post all of our stories every week. But thanks so much for joining us. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.